Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. All right. This week, Lauren will zero in on how Bristol-Myers is building out its early pipeline to find its next big act. Simone takes a look at the Rigel Lilly deal and the lessons for small companies. And Steve tells us what he's looking for from this week's advisory committee meeting for J&J's COVID-19 vaccine. But first, a little word from our sponsor, BioCentury This Week is brought to you by Icon. Helping emerging biopharma meet their milestones to market, Icon offers a flexible partnership model for biotechs acting as a fully externalized project development team starting in the preclinical phase to clinical research to real-world studies through to commercialization. Learn more at iconplc.com slash biotech. All righty, let's turn to Lauren. I know you just finished a big story on what's next for BMS. So they're looking to build out their pipeline to find their next big thing in cancer after Opdivo and Revlimid. How is it doing so? BMS has a strong history of doing later stage deals to fill the pipeline to find the revenue drivers. And with cancer this time, it seems a little bit different. So they've got some pressure with patent cliffs coming up for a couple of their big revenue drivers. And they're also really heavily focused, in my opinion, in the immuno-oncology space which has been a particularly difficult area to be successful in lately. I guess in contrast to what we've seen before, they just have a very big phase one pipeline, looks across a lot of different mechanisms and modalities. Lauren, do you think they're taking a broader swipe at this than the other farmers? Because obviously immuno-oncology is a big thing for many of the companies. Do you think Bristol's differentiated itself in any way? To some extent, I mean, in a lot of these pipelines, we're starting to see a little bit of differentiation. A lot of the big farmers will have a cytokine or maybe one or two by specifics. But what struck me from the BMS pipeline is it's very, very broad. There's a lot of different candidates in the different categories. And in contrast, if you look at GlaxoSmithKline, for example, they have programs for almost every next generation checkpoint inhibitor. They seem to be very focused in that area, but there doesn't seem to be one main focus in the BMS pipeline. And that's maybe due to the fact that they are the only big pharma company at this point that has taken a checkpoint inhibitor and a CAR T cell to market. So obviously we have to talk a little bit about the cell gene acquisition because this is the dust settling now after that. How good a job have they done of incorporating that into their pipeline? And do they have a lot of overlap? What is your take on that? From the early pipeline, actually, and and a lot of the later pipeline, it's very cell gene heavy. So in a lot of their focus areas are programs that came out of the cell gene deal from what I can see. Cell therapy has become a big priority and they just had their CAR-T from Celgene approved a few weeks ago, and they have a big focus on protein degradation, which also comes from Celgene. In my opinion, they're doing a decent job of integrating those programs and building that out with additional smaller deals in the same areas and internal research. It's interesting because I do hear some of the farmers are like, you know what, there's been no checkpoint inhibitors after PD-1, I'm just not even going there. 
it's all about cell therapies. And then other farmers are saying cell therapies are too difficult, manufacturing problems. I think we should just stay with things like checkpoints. But what you're saying is Bristol's not coming off the fence one way or another. They want it all. Yeah, it seems like their strategy is to try everything in the early stages and see what sticks. All right. Speaking of early stage and big pharma, let's take a look at the deal we're going to focus on this week. Eli Lilly has partnered with Rigel to develop RIP-K1 inhibitors. Do I have that right there, Lauren? RIP-K1? That's right. (laughs) Okay. The deal will triple Rigel's cash balance as it seeks to expand the label of its loan marketed product while also developing a wholly owned earlier stage clinical candidate. Simone, I know you were taking a look at this. What are the lessons for other small companies in this deal? The lessons for other small companies, or the lesson is keep going. They say in biotech, the only sin is to run out of money. And Rigel, they are, they're a lovely little Bay Area company. And I don't mean that in a sort of patronizing way. They are a relatively small company and they have been going a long while. They did a deal, I'm going to call this an old school deal, and I'll explain that in a minute. They got $125 million up front, total biobucks is is like $835 million, for their R552 program, which completed phase one for inflammatory diseases and should start phase two this year. And the deal includes preclinical programs. That amount of money is more than double what Rigel brought in last year for its approved or marketed sick inhibitor Tavalis. They brought in 61.7 million last year for that. Here's why I'm focused a little bit on it. They have another program. This is a little bit under the radar. They've got an IRAC program, I-R-A-K. And Rigel had to choose which one to partner. And they chose to partner the RIP Kinase deal. And they chose to partner it in order to fund the other program. And so they had to sort of, I don't know if I'm going to go to Solomon, but they had to choose which one to partner out there. And while the RIP kinase one actually might be a larger opportunity, it's got applications in rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, IBD, the IRAC program, which targets IRAC 1 and IRAC 4, Rigel thinks it's got a lead there because they say they are the only clinical program to target both of them. They say that they want to fund this program and have the flexibility to move forward on their own. The reason I say it's old school is more and more I'm hearing from farmers, there's so much money around that companies aren't doing that many deals to fund the next program. What they want from a deal is help from the farmer, like strategic and operational help from the farmer. We hear that a lot. But this deal isn't. This is Rigel doing the old school business of not running out of money. They've been around for a long time. They're kind of a journeyman in a way. There is another way to look at it is whether this is going to turn out into a bigger buyout for the Iraq program. We've seen a couple of deals like that. Medicines Company was around for a long time. We're taken out by Novartis. Kayadis, it was 23 years old. Then it bought a program and 18 months later was bought out by Sanofi. And so it's always worth keeping an eye on these sort of smaller companies that are trundling along, doing their work, doing really good science. And sometimes it goes somewhere, sometimes it doesn't. They live by deals. And yeah, I think the message is many of them keep going. (laughs) Yeah, they seem well positioned, a marketed product last year, 61 million in revenue. 
and something in the clinic, something hot and up and coming. Very science-driven company as well. That's another sort of old school thing. We've seen aggregator companies bringing this in and that in, but they know their science and they're developing it from the ground up, from research up. So it's like your father and mother's biotech, none of this. Grandfather's, I think in this case, even your grandfather's and your grandfather's (laughs) Your grandfather's biotech, biotech. nice. Well, and and RIP-K1 has caught the eye of another pharma. Denali has partnered with Sanofi on their program, which is a brain penetrant molecule, DNL-788. That is in development for a variety of things, Alzheimer's, ALS, and MS. Any thoughts on the target, Lauren? Yeah, I think the Denali program's interesting because this is a target that I believe when you hit it, it's involved in apoptosis of some neuronal cells. So the fact that they've got this cell penetrating technology that can get into the brain, I think is an exciting aspect to that. I don't know too much about the target itself, but I know that this is one of those kinases that's been hit by multi-kinase inhibitors in the past. And this is an example of where targeted therapies are starting to go now that the science is getting to more selective molecules. Excellent. Well, clearly a target to look out for. Let's turn to the ever interesting city of Washington, D.C., where our man Steve Usden is looking ahead to Friday's J&J Advisory Committee panel meeting. Steve, what are you expecting from this meeting? Is it going to be more of the same, what we saw from the Moderna meeting, the Pfizer-BioNTech meeting? No, I think this meeting is going to be quite different. I certainly hope it will for a couple of reasons. We've discussed this before, I think last week or the week before, that FDA really needs to use this meeting to frame for the public and for the medical community how to think about the J&J vaccine. The top line data on it is that it had somewhat less efficacy than Moderna and Pfizer. I think that the more nuanced look at it is to say, yeah, but its ability to prevent serious disease and hospitalization is comparable to Pfizer and Moderna. And also, by the way, it was tested at a time when the variants were different. That's a nuanced message. Hopefully, they'll be able to get that out to the public and use the meeting to do that. And I think the other thing that's going to be really crucial is the data dump we're going to get on Wednesday. We're going to learn a huge amount. With Moderna and with the Pfizer vaccines, we had a pretty good idea of what the efficacy was, what the trials looked like, and the data dump confirmed what we knew. It was fabulous. There was that tremendous curve that we saw, the charts that we saw showing the tremendous efficacy of those two. But I think we're going to learn a lot more from the J&J data dump on Wednesday. Steve, I've got a question about what you just said regarding a message to the public. It's relatively new that the public is so engaged in advisory committee meetings. And actually, my question is, outside of the pandemic, do you remember a time when the public was so aware of what was going on? The reason I ask that is that you're calling on FDA to use the meeting to speak to the public, which is not something that those meetings normally do. Actually... I think that the meetings have devolved into entirely an exercise in public relations or shaping public opinion. FDA doesn't go into these meetings seriously seeking scientific guidance from the committee. There are times when the advisory committee results shape the regulatory decisions, but that's the exception rather than the rule. I think the aducanumab panel is likely to have an impact on what FDA does. But FDA is not going into this meeting 
seriously thinking that they've got scientific questions that they need this panel to answer and that they're going to change what they do. It's entirely an exercise in transparency. And no, this isn't new. The AIDS Advisory Committee meetings served a similar purpose, and, and that was a, a long time ago. The Advisory Committee meetings around drug safety, remember when Vioxx was withdrawn and when there were the meetings about the other NSAIDs, those were also exercises in educating the public and bringing them along. And meetings about antibiotic safety were but also in, about in, that. In fairness, that's still the exception rather than the rule is, I don't know how many meetings a year. It's not common practice that the public tunes into these meetings. The public maybe not tune into them, but people at FDA have told me privately is that the advisory committee system is broken, largely because of the conflict of interest rules that prevent them in many cases, from putting the appropriate expertise on the committees. And also, I think, because they come at the end of the process when FDA has really worked through the issues they would want scientific guidance at. So it generally holds the committee meetings when they want to make a statement to the public or when they want to have a kind of an explanation for why they're not going to do something that they think the public hopes that they do. Yeah, that's really interesting. The voices coming from inside FDA on that. And it's a bigger story. I think there is a need to revise the way that FDA solicits and receives scientific advice. I would contend that the system is, if not broken, at least it's damaged. And the advisory committee process is an example of that. But getting back to the J&J &J meeting, I think it is an excellent opportunity for FDA to talk about how they look at these issues. It's also an opportunity for the public to hear from different voices, from different people who are on the committee who can talk to the public about the, the value of this vaccine. Steve, going back to your point about the need to revise how these meetings are run, is anyone pushing for that? Just me. I haven't heard anybody else do it. You know, I've, heard, <laughs> I, I've, heard, I've, heard, I've heard people at FDA privately lamenting it, but I think that they feel that their hands are tied and I haven't heard of anybody making it a, a big priority. Let's stay with FDA here. Last week saw Janet Woodcock, the acting FDA commissioner, defending the agency's interactions with drug sponsors. How did this come about, Steve? Public Citizen, which claims to have 500,000 members and followers around the world, wrote a letter to Janet Woodcock, the acting FDA commissioner, with a number of complaints and requests connected with the review of aducanumab for Alzheimer's. The letter argued that FDA has been too cozy with industry and requested that it firewall reviewers from any contact with drug sponsors going forward. Janet Woodcock wrote a letter back. She didn't respond to the parts of the letter about aducanumab, which is still under review, but she firmly rejected the idea that reviewers should be firewalled from drug sponsors. I gave Josh Sharfstein a call. He's a rival with Woodcock for being nominated as a permanent commissioner. He said that he agrees with Janet Woodcock, that review staff can and should interact with drug sponsors, that can be done appropriately, and that it's really an essential part of getting drugs reviewed appropriately. So likely not to have an impact on that horse race, Steve? I don't know. I, I also talked to Public Citizen about it, and I asked them where they stand on the FDA commissioner. And they said that they've opposed Dr. Woodcock for a long time and that they are actively lobbying uh, on behalf of Dr. Sharfstein for the job. They certainly hope that it plays a role in the decision-making around the nomination for the FDA commissioner. I think that it could come up at the um, confirmation hearings. It's likely that 
one of the senators would ask either Dr. Woodcock or Dr. Sharfstein about it if, in fact, they become the nominee. You said in the past, Steve, that it's not a completely closed situation. There are other candidates or names that could be put forward. I certainly think so. I don't think that it's a done deal. And I also personally think that the organizations and the individuals who have come out and made this into kind of a public spectacle have done a disservice to both to the candidates that they're promoting, to FDA, and to public health. I think that it shouldn't be treated like a presidential primary or something like that, which is the way that that they are treating it. I think that people need to take a step back and think about the purpose of the FDA commissioner and the importance of depoliticizing the role. My guess is that all of the controversy about Dr. Woodcock and Dr. Sharfstein is making the people around President Biden think about whether there might be a third person who they might want to nominate for the job. That's my concern. My concern is that having been so politicized last year, you really want FDA to move away from that. And by creating this sort of horse race, I feel they're not doing that. Well, and the other thing, besides depoliticizing, the next FDA commissioner, the next permanent commissioner, really has a huge job to do to rebuild morale within the agency. And to do that, they need to have a sense that they have the confidence of the president and of the Congress. If you have an FDA commissioner who just barely squeaks past in a vote in the the Senate and there's controversy from one political party or the other, it's not going to help that process. Well put, Steve. Let's turn to Africa before we go. There's a massive access disparity In Africa, the lack of access to medicines and care for cancer, and this condemns hundreds of thousands of Africans every year to deaths that could be avoided. Now, there's a handful of organizations, including some supported by biopharma companies, who are working to improve cancer care in Africa. Steve, you wrote a bit last week on what BioVentures for Global Health is up to. Can you expand on that? Yes. As you said, the thing that struck me in digging into this story is the enormous disparity in outcomes for people who have cancer. All of us know people who have had some form of cancer and have beaten it and have survived. If people who had those cancers have been living in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa, there's a very good chance that they wouldn't have. Huge portions of sub-Saharan Africa basically don't have access to any kind of decent cancer care. BioVentures for Global Health has got two really interesting and innovative programs. One of them is called the Africa Access Initiative. It's one where they go into countries in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa and do detailed assessments of what the needs are, what the capabilities are, and then they go with wish lists to multinational pharma companies and negotiate deep discounts on cancer drugs. I spoke with people in Cameroon and people in Nigeria, physicians who treat cancer patients in both those countries, who said that the drugs that they're getting and that they hope to get through BioVentures for Global Health are going to save lives, thousands of lives at at each of the hospitals that I spoke with. And I I thought that was quite an inspirational thing. The other thing that BVGH is doing, they're working to bolster the capabilities of African hospitals to participate in global clinical trials, global clinical research. And that, that also is important because it creates an infrastructure, it leaves an infrastructure behind that helps the community permanently. And it also provides very good access 
to care for the individuals who are enrolled in the trials, both in the investigational arms and in the placebo arms. I just want to add, Steve, one thing that really struck me about this. We hear about biopharmas, mostly in the US and Europe. They all want to contribute to global equity in health outcomes. And this is a vehicle whereby they can actually do that. They can get involved or work somehow with these organizations. The thing about it also, if you look at it from the outside, one, there's an enormous magnitude of the problem. And then two, you know, to be honest, anybody looking at working in these countries has got to be cognizant of the problems of corruption and conflict and now COVID all make it more difficult. So intermediaries like BVGH who have got experience on the ground and credibility make it much, much easier for, for companies to be confident that whatever contribution they're making is going to be well used and it's not going to be caught up in some problems that they don't even understand. All right. Thanks for that. That's all we have time for this week. All of our podcast is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. And you can find our podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google, as well as via the player in the BioCentury recap of the podcast.